while we're turning to Psalm 35, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we have given you our hearts in worship, Lord, may you keep hold of our heart as you speak to us instruction from your word, Father God. Um, just how deep and rich the Psalms are, Father God, how they touch the human emotion. And Lord, tonight we're going to look at a, a Psalm that has particularly very um, um, intense emotion and, and some prayers that may cause us to wonder if that's okay for us to pray. But Father, Lord, I want you to speak your wisdom to us, Lord, and help us to um, just garner the wisdom that we need to have, Lord. Help us to move from hurting to healing, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen. And that is the title for this psalm is from hurt to healing. To have wounds and hurt inflicted by others purposefully is traumatic. It doesn't matter if it's sticks and stones or the words that somebody says. Those wounds hurt. They're traumatic. To have those same wounds inflicted by trusted friends is a far greater trauma. Er say I, the greatest trauma. Rumors going viral that have their starting place as your best friend. Maybe you're in a group of friends and there's a rumor about one of them and it was started by their best friend. Maybe you have a coworker sabotaging your, relate, uh, your reputation at work um, or sabotaging your work so that they can get ahead at work or at least keep you from going anywhere at work. There's no other place where this, is, this type of trauma is known other than the marriage relationship in which there is adultery. But there's on and on and on ways in which we can betray and we can be betrayed. There, there's no shortage of accounts of abuse at the hands of people in trusted positions across not only this nation, but the world. We, we remember the, when it broke out at the prior Olympics with the American gymnastics team in, in which the abuse was perpetrated by Dr. Larry Nasser. He was in a place of special trust, and it turns out that there was over 500 women that came out. And we remember the scandal at Penn State with Jerry Sandusky. And before we start going, oh yeah, check out what the world's doing. Um, there's countless cases among members of the clergy within different churches as well. Abused places of trust. Touch a, a deep part of our hurt and, and our pain. And, and undealt with, that pain can turn into bitterness, resentment, and become a poison of the heart. There's another psalm similar to the one that we're going to look at tonight. We're looking at what's called imprecatory psalm tonight. And Psalm 5512, I, I, I had this psalm in my heart two years ago when someone who was close to me kind of stuck that knife in the back. And it happened twice within the same month by two different of close friends to me. And this psalm spoke to me as I came across it. It says, now it's not an enemy who insults me. Otherwise I could bear it. It's not a foe who rises up against me. Otherwise I could hide from him. But it is you, a man who's my peer, my companion and good friend. We used to have close fellowship and we walked with the crowd into the house of God. And that's kind of what we find here in Psalm 35. Psalm 35, the only title for it in your Bible is of David. This is a Psalm of David. We have no idea what time of his life this took place in, but we can place it at many different times of his life because he was a man acquainted with grief, much like our Savior was, as he was a type of Christ. It's an imprecatory psalm, as I said earlier. It's a psalm in which the psalmist prays and asks God to punish, to judge, or to curse someone for their wickedness in just retribution. Now, a lot of Christians misunderstand the imprecatory psalms, and they've done so for a long time. In fact, 
Famed Christian author C.S. Lewis said this, the hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised. I wonder if I have this on a slide. I don't. thought I had it on a slide. The hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised. And also we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it or worse, still used it to justify similar passions in ourselves. What he's saying is the imprecatory Psalms, which are prayers like this one that we're going to look at from David, are not for us to pray. There's some who have removed the imprecatory Psalms from even being part of any of their teachings, all those formal churches such as the Catholic Church um, and the uh, other ones that follow lectionaries. They've removed the imprecatory Psalms from their lectionaries' daily readings. They do not quote from them. They do not read from them. Now, it's true. The Bible does record on many occasions wicked and bad words and examples of wrong actions. Is that an explanation for the imprecatory Psalms? Are they an evil that was just kept there so that we could see how dark David's heart was? Are they examples of good men praying bad prayers? I would say the answer is no. And here's why. The New Testament does not shy away from quoting these imprecatory psalms. Jesus himself quoted from the imprecatory psalms. I'm not saying that we can all be like Jesus, but I am saying 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And, and truly, we believe this. This is why we teach verse by verse. We can't say, oh, well, we're not going to teach this one. Or if we do teach it, we're just going to write it off and say it has no value for us because God has put it in his word. And so therefore, it has value for us. You see, in the pain and the hurt of finding himself a victim of treachery, David turns to God and asks God to act on his behalf. What we get here is an example of David who knows that judgment and retribution and vengeance would be just, but he refuses to take judgment and vengeance into his own hands because he believes that the Lord is the one who will vindicate him. This psalm is a combination of three laments over the opposition of David's enemies. And these laments show us how we move from hurt to healing. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 35, it says, Oppose my opponents, Lord. Fight those who fight me. Take your shields, large and small, and come to my aid. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers and assure me I am your deliverance. Let those who intend to take my life be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who plan to harm me be turned back and ashamed. Let them be like chaff in the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. They hid their net for me without cause. They dug a pit for me without cause. Let ruin come on him unexpectedly. Let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his ruin. Then I will rejoice in the Lord. I will delight in his deliverance. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Rescuing the poor from one too strong for him. The poor or the needy from one who robs him. Malicious witnesses come forward. They question me about things I do not know. They repay me evil for good, making me desolate. Yet, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting. My prayer was genuine. I went about mourning as if for my friend or my brother. I was bowed down with grief like one mourning for a mother. When I stumbled, they gathered in glee. They gathered against me. Assailants I did not know tore at me and did not stop. With godless mockery, they gnashed their teeth at me. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages. Rescue my precious life from the young lions. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will exalt you among many people. Do not let my deceitful enemies rejoice over me. 
Do not let those who hate me without cause wink at me maliciously. For they do not speak in friendly ways, but contrive fraudulent schemes against those who live peaceably in the land. They open their wise, their they open their mouths wide against me and say, Aha! Aha! We saw it. You saw it, Lord. Do not be silent. Lord, do not be far from me. Wake up and rise to my defense, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, Lord, my God, in keeping with your righteousness and do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say in their hearts, aha, just what we wanted. Do not let them say we have swallowed him up. Let those who rejoice at my misfortune be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and reproach. Let those who want my vindication shout for joy and be glad. Let them continually say, the Lord be exalted. He takes pleasure in his servant's well-being. And my tongue will proclaim your righteousness and your praise all day long. So this psalm divides up neatly into three appeals. The first appeal from David that we're going to look at is verses 1 through 10. And as we look at the first three verses, it says, Oppose my opponents, Lord. Fight those who fight me. Take your shields, large and small, and come to my aid. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers and assure me I'm your deliverance. Easy enough, the psalm opens up with a cry for help to the Lord by David. We come and the scene is set. David's embattled by enemies. The battle is personal. It's his battle. It, it, it's an appeal to help. He says, help with my opponents. David faced many enemies on the battlefield. He knew many opponents when he could see them. More often than not, what we're going to find is that our struggle is identifying the true source and character of the enemies that seek to destroy us. You see, sometimes what appears to be flesh and blood against us really is spiritual in nature. It may be a person before us that's battling with us, but there's a spiritual war going on in the background. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 6. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. There's only one place we can go when the battle turns spiritual. So David calls on the Lord to take up the fight. When he says oppose my opponents, that word oppose, it's a legal term. He's saying, take up my case. Take up my case and argue it for me. And like David, we have to make our appeal for our help to come from the Lord. To ask him for his help in our fight. Because one thing is, as Christians we are not to seek to take vengeance against our enemies. We are called to turn the battle over to the Lord. We always find ourselves in more trouble than it's worth when we say, I'm going to vindicate myself. You see, we have an enormous supply of strength that we can tap into. As Paul encourages us in Ephesians 6.10, before he talks about that our we don't fight against flesh and blood, he says this, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. However strong you think you might be, the Lord is stronger. However long you might be able to endure and be able to continue in your fight for yourself, the Lord can endure longer. And so when we're embattled and we're in that place, we need to turn the battle over to the Lord. You see, we have examples throughout scripture of this happening. Every time when God gave a victory to the nation of Israel, 
It was done in such a way they couldn't take credit because the battle always belongs to the Lord. And we also see the heavenly uh, beings. Here's how they respond when they're in battle. Michael, the archangel of heaven. And there's only ever one archangel that they talk about in the scriptures. That tells me that he's kind of important. When he contended with the devil, he didn't come against the devil himself. He's probably the mightiest angel in all of heaven coming against someone who's not necessarily even his equal. And he didn't come in his own strength. In Jude 9, it says, well, yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. We need to follow that example and allow the Lord to fight our battles for us. But you know what makes that so hard? It's almost like we're afraid that he won't fight it for us. David calls out for the Lord. He says, take your shields, large and small, come to my aid. He says, I need your defense. I need your defensive help, not only for the small attacks, but for the large attacks. For the large volley of arrows that the enemy is going to throw, we need the Lord with his large shield but also for those single darts. You know those ones, they seem to come from a sniper's bow and it goes straight to your heart and it hurts you like you've never thought possible. We ask the Lord, I need your defense in that one also. He says, draw the spear and the javelin. These are weapons of war. David is saying, I want you to make war against my pursuers. And he says, do this in order that you would assure me. And he says, I am your deliverance. David's not saying, and, and assure me that I'm your deliverance, Lord. No, what he's saying is live up to your name. You see, God gave us all sorts of names to know him by so that we would know that we could count on him because God lives up to every one of his names. And here his name is, I am your deliverance. That was one of the most intriguing things that I found in scripture is that the reason why God, when Moses said, what's your name? He responded with, I am that I am. It's because everything that God says, I am, he will be for you. That is his covenantal promise. When you make him your God, when you follow him, when you submit to him, But like David, sometimes we need to hear it again. He says, assure me of your name that I, I am your deliverance. I need to hear it again that you are God of my salvation and no one else. David is in his own salvation. God is reminding him in his soul, I am your salvation. And here's a couple of things that we can understand from David that might ring true for us. And it's okay. Number one, David had his doubts. And we will have our doubts as well. And that's okay. I've heard far too many people either teaching or talking about how Christians should never doubt. No, we're allowed to have our doubts. We bring them before the God who can handle our doubts. You see, the second thing is David wasn't content in his doubts. Have your doubts. Don't be content in them. Don't live in your doubts. Don't stay there. Bring them before the God who can conquer your doubts. We have our assurance if we follow David and where his assurance came from. You see, David's assurance was in a divine source. Where's your assurance? Is it a monetary source? Is it a security source? You will have zero assurance unless you find your assurance in the divine source. And there is only one who is divine. God says throughout his scripture all the time, I am am the Lord God, and there are no other gods besides me. 
See, David's assurance was deep, but also personal. Have you made your assurance in God personal? Is he your God? That's why he says, he says, in, 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 in the psalm, he'll, he'll talk and he'll call him my God, my Lord. Because he's made it personal. David's assurance was also present. He's not waiting for his assurance. He's already assured. Sometimes we get ourselves into trouble where we're like, well, I'm just going to wait this out and then I'll be assured. When this happens, God, then I'll have my assurance. We need to have our assurance now. We can have it now. We can have that peace in our heart now that he's going to fight our battle, that he's going to chase off our enemies, that he's got our back. Spurgeon says it this way, brethren, there's nothing that can make you strong to labor for God, bold to fight against your enemies, and mighty to resist your temptations, like a full assurance that God is your God and your salvation. David then goes in to what his, his request is. He says in verse four, let those who intend to take my life be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who plan to harm me be turned back and ashamed. Let them be like chaff in the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. They hid their net for me without cause. They dug a pit for me without cause. Let ruin come on him unexpectedly and let the net that he hid ensnare him, let him fall into it to his ruin. You see, David's appeal to the Lord is to let those who intended to take his life be disgraced and humiliated because they fail at it. He says, let them fail miserably and shamefully that they'll turn away. He says, let them be like chaff in the wind. And then he calls and he says, let the angel of the Lord drive them away. You know what's pretty cool about this? David's calling on the same source that we're going to call on this side of the cross. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a Christophany of Christ pre-incarnate. And so he's calling on Christ to drive away his enemies. The same Christ that we get to call on to drive away our enemies. He says, they set a trap and dug a pit, both without cause, meaning David did nothing to invite this, this vile hatred. He says, I haven't done anything worthy of these types of tactics. And that's when it really catches us off guard and bothers Like, I didn't even do anything wrong, Lord. Like, why am I in this situation? Why is this coming against me? I didn't do anything to these people. I, where is this coming from? And so David calls out and he says, let ruin come on them unexpectedly, as unexpected as this was to me. He says, let them be ensnared and fall in their own traps. And, and mind you, we're going to see that David is not dealing with like his normal, like, oh, it's the Amalekites. Oh, it's the Philistines, his normal enemies. These are those who are supposed to be close to him. David's appeal is that the Lord would work in such a way that they would be ensnared and fall into their own traps. And that the Lord would also work in such a way as to vindicate David. Paul was known to pray in precatory prayers. Paul has prayed, let them be rewarded for their works. Because Christ or God promises that He will reward us according to our works, right? And so He prays. He says, "Let them be rewarded according to their works." And if somebody prayed that about you, would that be a a good prayer, or would that be a uh oh prayer? Let us evaluate our works and what it is that we're doing. And then this first appeal, David finishes out, and here's where we get the strength to move from hurt to healing. David says, then I will rejoice in the Lord. I will delight in his deliverance. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, rescuing the poor from one too strong, the poor or the needy from one who robs him. You see, David ends with a profound statement of faith. 
David indicates that his desire is to rejoice and praise in the Lord's deliverance. Rejoice in the Lord as his deliverer. See, he's not rejoicing in the destruction of others. He's rejoicing in the salvation that's given through the Lord. We need to rejoice in the fact that we have a God who fights on our behalf. We have a God who's promised to right the wrongs, to correct those things that happen against us. We have a God who's promised all those things that happen against us. Because here's what I find in Christian circles. As we talk and we say, so-and-so did this to me and, and this and that, and they start going, but I'm a Christian, so I just have to let it go. That means they're going to get away with it. They're actually not. All the wrongs that are done against us, God has promised to remember and to deal with. Now, he may deal with it at the cross of Christ, the same way he dealt with ours. Unless we have an issue with that, we need to remember that's the same way he dealt with ours. If, however, they reject Christ at the end of time, at the end judgment, in which all men give an account, he'll deal with it then. He's promised that. We need to remember that our salvation comes from the covenant-keeping God. Full confidence expressed in God, following through and delivering him from his enemies. We have to look past the hurt and towards the hope of assured deliverance. For who is like our Lord? In the second appeal, we get a more understanding about this betrayal that's happening to David. David says, malicious witnesses come forward and they question me about things I do not know. They repay me evil for good, making me desolate. Yet, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer was genuine. I went about mourning as if for my friend or brother. I was bowed down with grief like one mourning for a mother. But when I stumbled, they gathered in glee. They gathered against me. Assailants I did not know tore at me and did not stop. With godless mockery, they gnashed their teeth at me. And he says, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages. Rescue my precious life from the young lions. And I will praise you in the great assembly. I will exalt you among many people. So David appeals in a legal sense in, in his first appeal. And in the second appeal, David is kind of like contrasting. He's like, contrast my actions and their actions, Lord, and see There's malicious witnesses that are asking questions and, and they know that they're false. They're asking these questions and David hasn't, he, he doesn't know the answer because they're asking questions specifically that are false. That never happens today, right? In all these uh, congressional hearings and whatnot, we don't see people asking questions that they know are false and holding people up. Has that ever happened to you where someone's giving you a line of questioning that they know is false? knowing that you were never there or had no part in it. It can be, it can take you off guard because what, what's the main idea? Well, if we start denying it, oh, why is he denying it? Oh, he's being very defensive. That must mean there's something to it. So we're like kind of caught in a catch-22, right? You're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't. And so they, David then says, they come repaying evil for my good. He said, I gave them good and, and, and I get evil back. You see, David says, here's how I treated them. He said, when they were sick, I fasted. I was in sackcloth. I took away my comfort to pray for their healing. He says, my prayer was heartfelt and genuine. His mourning for them was this, like they were in a close relationship. These people were considered and seen as friends by David. He cared for them. The situation described is all too common and it's excruciatingly painful. 
because when they stumble, oh, they want mercy. They say, oh, you, they have mercy on me. I'm, I'm going through this thing, right? Someone, someone treats you terribly and you, you like want to lash back at them and they're like, hey, I'm just going through a lot right now. I have this problem or that problem or this and that. But when you stumble, oh, they gather in glee and they can't wait to like rub your face in it, you know? And that's what happened with David. He said, I stumbled and they came against me. They saw an opportunity. It's a shock. When those whom you once counted as friends and have been recipients of your kindness and your love, your prayers and your hospitality, when they turn against you with such vitriol. But you know what? It's common. Not just common because we live in a fallen world, but it's common because that's what happens for those who choose to follow and to serve the Lord. Those who want to be leaders for God, they're going to have it happen to them, whether it's in the church or outside the church, it's going to happen no matter what. That's just, a, that's just part of the calling. Treachery and betrayal is the rule of the day, but nothing, compare, nothing prepares us. Nothing prepares us for when our friend becomes Judas. And there's a phrase that we use to express this. It's etu brutus. And we all know where that comes from. Julius Caesar, as he was being killed, his closest friend was one of the ones stabbing him. So the second appeal, it reaches a crescendo with David crying out through all the pain and asking the hard question, the same question that's on all of our minds. Whenever something happens like that to us and, and we have to go through it and we're dealing with all that pain and we're dealing with all that, and we go, how long, Lord? And here, here, here's how that plays out. How long, Lord, are you going to let it continue? How long, Lord, are you going to look on? How long until you do something? And really what that is, it's a desperate plea. It's God, rescue me. It hurts now. I'm going through it now. I want you to pay attention to this, though, in verse 17. David doesn't stay on the how long, Lord. Notice he doesn't list. Look at all the things I've done for you, God. Look at how much you owe me. He doesn't go that. He says, how long, Lord? And then he puts his request. He says, rescue me from their ravages. Rescue my precious life from the young lions. And then again, we see how he moves from the hurt to the healing because he moves on to praise. The praise of the promise of faith. He says, I will praise you in the great assembly. I will exalt you among many people. And I want you to understand what he's saying here. Because it took me a minute to understand it. Maybe you caught it already, but it took me a minute to understand it. David's not looking for rescue out of where he's at right now. He's not saying, I'll praise you when I'm out of that. He's saying, I'll praise you in the great assembly. There's coming a great assembly when all those who are in the Lord are gathered together, worshiping, praising, and singing praises to our God who has vanquished the last enemy and put him away. And here's the promise. Today, you may not be standing in the congregation of saints praising your God. But one day you will be there. For some that serve the Lord and serve him faithfully, they're called to works across the seas in which maybe today they're standing in a jail cell. Do you know that being a Christian, that can be somewhere where that you go unjustly 
You might be sitting in the unemployment line because of your faith in God. For the younger ones, if you're in public school or whatnot, you could be in the principal's office. And it can be because a false brother raised evil accusations against you. It's completely unfair. But you can still look forward to the day when you will stand in the middle of a great congregation pouring out thanksgiving and praise to Yahweh, your God, and you can praise him now. And it brings us to David's third and final appeal. Verse 19, he says, Do not let my deceitful enemies rejoice over me. Do not let those who hate me without cause wink at me maliciously. He says, they do not speak in friendly ways, but contrive fraudulent schemes against those who live peaceably in the land. They open their mouths wide against me and say, aha, aha, we saw it. David's third appeal, he says, keep my enemies from rejoicing over me, Lord. Don't let them have the victory. Don't let them get the desired outcome. Lord, keep them from getting the outcome that they seek. He says, don't let them wink at me maliciously trying to figure out how you wink at somebody maliciously. I always thought a wink was only seen like in a friendly way. But apparently that's actually a phrase, an idiom that means that they signal to one another when to attack. David states that they do not speak in friendly ways. They contrive fraudulent schemes against those who live peaceably. He says, their whole purpose is to go against those who are living peaceably. They're not even the troublemakers. They're not even the ones out there um, seeking all this stuff. They're trying to live peaceably. They're trying to live quietly. Um, that word peaceably means without agitation or activity. And these people, they open their mouths wide and they go, aha, aha. They're the ones that are looking for that one little minute mistake. That one little thing that they can try to use. And what we see is we see the usual operating method of our enemies and of the enemy himself. Deception, injustice, and mockery. Verse 22, David says, You saw it, Lord. Do not be silent, Lord. Do not be far from me. Wake up and rise to my defense, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, Lord, my God, in keeping with your righteousness and do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say in their hearts, aha, just what we wanted. Do not let them say we have swallowed him up. So David makes his appeal to the Lord. He says, Lord, don't be silent. Don't be far from me. Wake up, rise to my defense. This is somebody who's, who's going through this and all, from all intents and purposes, it seems like God's asleep, right? That God is just keeping silent, that God is not acting. Is what David's saying necessarily wrong about how he feels? No, it's not wrong. That's how he feels. Are feelings truth? No. And we need to understand that because even though we don't feel like God is actively doing anything on our behalf, we know that he is because he says he is. David says, you saw it, Lord. So he's speaking out in faith going, Lord, you saw it. Because God has promised that he looks and he watches his righteous ones. He says, wake up and rise to my defense, my cause. He says, my God, my Lord. And then he calls out and he calls by faith. He says, you are righteous, vindicate me. That's what he says in verse 25. I'm sorry, in verse 24, he says, vindicate me, Lord God, in keeping with your righteousness. Did you know that you can call out on God and ask him for those things that are according to his character? And he's going to act according to his character because he is God and he does not deny himself. And so if he is righteous, he will act righteously. 
And so the Lord does see. The Lord is good. The Lord is righteous. And we can call out to him. David continues on, verse 26, let those who rejoice at my misfortune be disgraced and humiliated. Let those who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and reproach. This is on the other side. Let those who want my vindication shout for joy and be glad. Let them continually say, the Lord be exalted. He takes pleasure in his servant's well-being and my tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praise all day long. You see, in praying for God to act righteously, the unrighteous automatically come to ruin. David's not necessarily just praying for them to have misfortune. David's praying for God to be praised, for him to act in such a way that those who see and are paying attention would lift up his name, would exalt him, would take pleasure in the way that he, ser- that he comes in and saves his servant. He says, my tongue will proclaim your righteousness and praise all day long. Sometimes we can read this though and think that David's going, if you do this, then I will praise you, God. Don't get into that with God. Don't get into the, well, if, if you do this, God, then I'll praise you. What David is actually saying is, I already proclaim your praises. I already sing your praises. I'm not going to stop singing your praises, but I am still calling on you for your salvation. And what this all comes to is for us to understand as we go in this life living for the Lord, we're going to be hurt. We're going to be hurt by those that we expect it from, but we're going to be hurt by those that we don't expect it from also. See, when you commit to serving Jesus and when you commit to serving others, you should expect bad treatment from them. we usually get hurt the most when we're like, oh, I'm going to do this and they're going to respond so well to me. They're going to treat me so nice. And when they turn around and don't do that, we get extra hurt. We're like, oh my gosh, not what I expected at all. A servant of Jesus has to be prepared to suffer at the hands of men. And as we come to that realization and as we take that and as we make that our normal, we need to resolve right now. I'm choosing to serve Jesus. People are going to hurt me. And I resolve right now, I will never be able to resolve those injustices myself. I will never be able to get vengeance for myself. You always have to leave it in God's hands. You know what you leave in God's hands? You leave your deliverance. You leave your rewards. You leave your comfort. The only thing that we can do is use our rejoicing. Paul said that we should Rejoice when we suffer for the sake of Christ, as if we are adding to his, to his sufferings, not that, that they were incomplete, but that we get to be partakers of the sufferings of Christ. A lot of us will say, I, I, I would die for Christ. How many of us will live for him, being partakers of that suffering? Our ultimate focus must not be on our enemies. It can't even be on our own vindication. Like our whole goal of living the Christian life isn't to wait till the end. I'm waiting for that day of vindication. And once I get there, oh, I'll have arrived. We're promised that day. But our ultimate focus should be on praising God who is perfect, who is holy, who is just, who is good, who is always there for us. And here's why. Because worship returns us to the true focus of our lives. Our business in life is to praise God and live for his glory. Here's God's business. God takes out the trash. God takes out 
all the vengeance on our enemies. This psalm, I believe, helps clarify that important distinction. And it doesn't matter how close the hurt is to us. Now, these appeals to God, they're urgent, they're persuasive, and they're forceful. They're bold, but they're not audaciously proud. Meaning, it's not an arrogant call of David to ask God to act in these ways. And what they come from is the humble heart of faith. As we look at each of his appeals to the Lord, what we see is that he has faith in what God has already promised that he would do. And he's simply just calling out. And the cries for help, as I said, they're attended with the statements of faith in God and praise for his deliverance. And here, faith always expects deliverance. Faith always expects deliverance. We remember these words from Jesus. In John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, understand it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as his own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. And here's the one that I need to keep for myself. I don't know, maybe this will help you, but I know for myself, I had to memorize this one and keep it. Jesus says, remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. We need to, why do we expect to be treated greater than our Lord. See that experience of going through that deep tra trauma and that pain and, and getting over it is remind, reminding ourselves of the trauma and the pain that Christ went through. Christ came to earth as a baby, lived an entire life, perfect, sinless, but was hated without cause. He was falsely accused and attacked by those for whom he had shown nothing but kindness to. And in the ultimate act of betrayal, He was handed over to be murdered by one whom he considered his disciple, his friend, and one of whom it was said Jesus loved him. That's why being known as a Judas is being known as the ultimate betrayer. Caesar's friend Brutus may have stabbed him in the back with a knife. Judas stabbed Jesus in the back with a kiss. And keep this in mind. As we read Psalm 35, understand this. God delivered David. God delivered David from his enemies. Yet when it came to Christ, he spared not his own son but willingly gave him to die for the sins of the world. You see, that's the assurance that we have that he is our deliverer because he's withheld not even his own son. So how therefore should he withhold any other good thing from us? How could we ever doubt that he would save us? if he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins, for our forgiveness, for our salvation. Because we never deserved it. And so as we, as we close, we're going to sing a uh, last praise song. And, and here's how we move 
Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you're going through a lot of pain, family issues, relationship issues, world issues, work issues, whatever it is, the, the pain is in your heart that hurts so bad and you wonder if God cares. He does care. The way that we move and we don't become embittered and resentful in that is we have to move from our problem to our praise of God, believing he will deliver us. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening, Lord, and we thank you so much. Father, we thank you so much for the not only the book of Psalms, but for these Psalms specifically, Lord. Lord, we desire to see you act in accordance with all of your promises and according to your character, Father God. Lord, right now we know that we are in a time of, of grace and forgiveness and mercy, Father God. And so, Lord, as, uh, as David prayed for the destruction of his enemies so that he could be lifted up and that you would be glorified, Father, we know that on this side that we pray for our enemies on this side. We pray for those who persecute us, that we love those who hate us and spitefully use us. We're told that as we do that, we're actually putting hot coals upon their head. But Lord, that's not, the, that's not why you want us to do it. It's because we are in this time of forgiveness. We want to pray for their forgiveness. We want to pray for their salvation. We want to see our enemies become our friends. As you vanquish our enemies, it's not because you've destroyed them. It's because you converted them. You renewed them. Father, we long to see your work of renewal, not only in our own lives, Father God, but in those around us. Lord, help us to move from beyond the hurt, singing your praises, Father God, understanding that some of the hurt that we go through comes with the territory of, of being your children. Help us to find our comfort in Christ, in his name. We pray, amen.